Thank you for downloading the Plod podcast, Police Law On Demand, brought to you by 3D solicitors and barristers from Sergeants in Chambers. In our podcast series, we are going to discuss a range of topics affecting police officers and anyone involved in the criminal justice system. For more updates on police law, follow the Sergeants in Police Law blog at ukpolicelawblog.com. If you have any suggestions for any topics that you would like us to cover, please email plod at 3d-solicitors.com. The police have many statutory powers enabling them to apply for and obtain from a court a search warrant. By far the most common way for the police to obtain this is Section 8 of the Police and Criminal Evidence Act. They have to comply with the procedural rules set out in Sections 15 and 16, which govern how the police can obtain a search warrant and conduct any search performed under the warrant. Police officers all know that. To authorise a police search warrant in the UK, the police have got to convince the court that consent would not be forthcoming from the occupier. The material which is the subject of the search is likely to be of substantial value to the investigation of a criminal offence. It's relevant and admissible at trial. And the evidence sought by the police doesn't consist of legally privileged material or other material that may be excluded at trial. I'm Daniel Burke from 3D Solicitors. I'm joined today by Alex Dos Santos, a barrister at Sergeants in Chambers. Alex, there's probably a view anecdotally amongst defence lawyers that warrants may often be granted too easily by the court, sometimes without sufficient scrutiny, especially in the lower courts. That can, of course, cause corner cutting by some putting the applications together. But this will lay warrants open to challenge, especially in more complex cases. So I'm sure you'll agree it's of vital importance that officers take care and precision when they're framing these applications. Absolutely. There's a tendency for judges to look at an application and sometimes not conspicuously go through the various stages they need to before granting. And that leaves the warrant open to challenge down the road, where otherwise it might have been an entirely proper application, which would have been properly granted had the relevant parties applied their minds properly to it. A great example of that is a recent case involving the well-known businessman and property developer Robert Chenguez, who brought a claim for damages arising from an unlawful search warrant issued by the SFO. That's right. And I think that case raised a number of issues. I mean, it's well understood, I think, by officers that they need a degree of precision in their applications. But because the statute and the powers are quite precise in terms of the various tests, officers need to take care that each part of that test, or each of the criteria are met and set out so a judge can actually be seen to have turned their mind to it and been satisfied it is proper to grant the warrant. And... The judge really needs to be satisfied the relevant facts only need to be sufficient to demonstrate reasonable grounds for suspecting. Yes. That's as far as a judge will need to go. But the Chenguez one was a, a great example because it was so complicated and the knowledge involved was so specialist. And, and to treat a case of that gravitas in the way that a less serious, less complicated case may be treated is, is perhaps a mistake for law enforcement officials to make. Absolutely. When you deal with allegations, particularly of a technical financial nature, you'll be aware that the Chengis case arose out of an investigation into the collapse in 2008 of the Icelandic um, Kalpthing Bank. Uh, and so, of course, there were um, quite a lot of financial issues and aspects to the background allegations that the court needed to consider for granting a warrant. Uh, and what the court held in the Chengis case that dealt with search warrants. And I say that case because there were quite a, a number of court hearings to do with or arising out of that investigation, but was that the court is entitled to and must have the assistance of some specialist 
help on the topic that they're dealing with. So, for example, it could be banking or financial services. Yes, I think the, the judge in this case said there's a very heavy duty placed on the SFO to ensure that what's put before the judge is clear and comprehensive so the judge can rely on it to form his judgment on the basis of a presentation in which he has complete trust and confidence so as to its accuracy and completeness. Uh, they go on to say that cases in financial markets will require the judge to be familiar with the commercial market background. Now, this was a very, very complicated commercial and market background. And as you say, they made it clear that there must be a record of verification from the SFO and there must be expert evidence, people expert in the market uh, with accounting practices to underpin that. Absolutely right. And um, if I can just quote from paragraph 86 of the judgment, the court said this, the important question is how in practice that detailed anxious and intense scrutiny can be carried out by the judge in a case involving the financial markets. The task is very different to the usual cases where search warrants are sought and the task of the judge is relatively straightforward. So again, that's a salutary observation by the court where there may be a more complicated financial background to any allegations. I mean, what screams out to me from this judgment, Alex, is the emphasis that the judge must be able to have complete confidence in the information that they're presented with. There's a confidence as to its accuracy and completeness, which I suppose leads us on to disclosure issues. And there's a very heavy duty on those presenting this information to the court. It's, it's almost a duty of candour. Absolutely. It is very important because these are, in their essence, an ex parte application where the judge is being asked to consider effectively one side of matters. A typical example about where the full duty of candour really bites is where financial information is presented and one have expected the applicant to have checked company house records and give a proper account of what's contained therein. So I've seen instances, for example, where they've put forward part of the financial position but not other parts where, for example, there's records at company's house of shareholder investment that is capable of explaining away some of the financial transactions that are taking place. And the minute that happens, that undermines the application and information upon which the judge based his conclusions. And the result in that could be that the warrant set aside. set aside. The court stated that if an officer withholds any relevant information from the application, which, if heard, could have led to a refusal of the application, then the warrant granted becomes invalid. So if anything has been withheld, I suppose it must be of sufficient weight that it may have led to the refusal of the application in the first place. But the salutary lesson for any officer dealing with this will be be candid, be forthcoming, yes. make sure the judge has all the information, whether or not it assists you. Absolutely. And it's one of those matters also that inspires confidence in what the police are doing. And it's, of course, in keeping with the nature of the power that's being exercised. And we've spoken a bit about judges doing what they can to scrutinise whether or not there's a prima facie or there's reasonable grounds for the application. But it's worth thinking about the practice direction, which states that judges must be given sufficient reading time and reminds judges the intrusive nature of these powers and what they're doing. So again, it's when we see um, transcripts of hearings in these applications where a judge has had just a very cursory inspection or effectively rubber stamped the application, then that by itself will invalidate the warrant. And it, it's, I mean, it's, it's a courtesy because uh, no judge will ever thank you for being suddenly presented with 12 lever arch files of expert evidence with no time to read it. But it also underlines 
the complexity and, and how much time will be needed to give this serious consideration. It becomes more complicated still when we look at information that may be protected by public interest immunity. Yes, that, that does become more complicated because the insofar as an application is made, those who are subject to those applications or those warrants do have a, an ability to challenge them in court and they're entitled to know the basis upon which the application was made. So there is authority that states that for it to be a real possibility of challenge, the underlying information would generally be provided to the subject. Of course, where there is public interest immunity material of that nature, where it's important that the judge is aware of it for the granting of the warrant, it may not be practical or appropriate for a subject to be able to see that material. So that will generally not be, well, that will not be provided to the subject of the search warrant. When they go to a judicial review, that's when it becomes more complicated because for the High Court to be able to scrutinise what occurred below, they will need to know on what basis the Crown Court judge made their application. And that perhaps takes us to one of the most recent, if not the most recent, case dealing with search warrants. And it's a case which hasn't yet resolved. However, it is at the point at the moment of directions. And it is the case called Terror Services Limited National Crime Agency. A judgment came down the 10th of July by the Divisional Court, presided over by Lord Justice Singh and Mrs Justice Carr. Uh, And in essence, um, one of the um, allegations that's made in that matter um, is that the warrant was obtained, first of all, it was obtained by prior unlawfulness. Um, There was inaccurate and incomplete disclosure to the Crown Court and the terms of it were excessive and insufficiently specific. Now, in that instance, the NCA relied upon um, PI material, and the court had to grapple with how it considers that fairly at the permission stage. So what they've done is set directions that they may consider it essentially in a closed material process, which is not quite the same as PII, and consider to what extent they need to go into that material to determine permission. They refused, by the way, the... Uh, an application by the claimant for more wide-ranging disclosure, saying the only relevant material is the information placed before the judge at the time for the application. And in, to that extent, um, the court considered that it did have to engage with that material. And so there's going to be down um, down the road a, little, um, a judgment which addresses these um, principles a little further. So we'll need to keep our eyes out for that. Let's explore something that may be of interest to police officers listening to this, which is how the rules differ slightly in proceeds of crime cases. It was a case in, in 2015, a few years ago, where it was held that the intention of Parliament, where search warrants were seeking material under the Proceeds of Crime Act, they could legitimately be broader and less specific yes. than for search warrants for articles or persons under the Police and Criminal Evidence Act. That's been considered by the High Court in a case called Atwell and Lewis Crown Court in 2015, where exactly the point you make was determined by the court, um, that it was the clear intention of Parliament that search warrants relating to process of crime material could be broader and less specific. And it's because of the nature of the allegations the court's Mm. dealing with. So they're looking at the nature of the allegation rather than specifically the material. And it's less likely the police would be in a position to be specific at that early stage. So because of the nature of the allegation and the, the regime under which the search warrant is sought, 
courts, so they, they don't have to be quite as specific as they do under Peace and Criminal Evidence and Act. The, the nature of the Proceeds of Crime Act is such a catch-all act where a great deal may be up for grabs in the event of a conviction in terms of what assets somebody has. Absolutely, and part, part of the nature of money laundering in its various guises is the conversion and transformation of property, and it's not always it, yeah. obvious that the, that, where that property may have ended up. Mm. And so in investigating, once a certain threshold is met, Parliament's decided that the prosecuting authorities ought to have a slightly wider discretion to, I say discretion, but they don't need quite as much detail at the early stage, just sufficient to open the door so that they can make um, proper assessments when they execute the search warrant. Yeah, which is good news for investigators and harder for those possibly yes. engaged in money laundering. So, Alex, just to, to round up, really, what advice would you give to a police officer looking to frame an application for a warrant in a, in a difficult case? Um, I would say, really, the first thing is make sure that the application itself identifies which regime it is going under. So there are possibilities to go for a search warrant or apply for one where there's an international application and the authorities are acting on behalf of that, whether it's a Process of Crime Act application or Police and Criminal Evidence Act application. So be clear upon which process you're relying upon. Each of the criteria set out in the relevant act needs to be thought through so that the officer said, if I was asked the question, how would I demonstrate this criteria is met? And so the application itself is full enough. I'd make sure the judge has sufficient time, but also turns his or her mind those criteria in the hearing and finally asks when I've put something forward from the material I have is that a full and fair picture of that material could someone say that I've been selective and those are perhaps the fairly obvious issues but ones that ought to be routinely considered when applications are made just to prevent a challenge as fast as possible. Excellent. Alex thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for downloading the Plod podcast. Police Law On Demand, brought to you by 3D solicitors and barristers from Sergeants in Chambers. For more updates on police law, follow the Sergeants in Police Law blog at ukpolicelawblog.com. If you have any suggestions for any topics that you would like us to cover, please email plod at 3d-solicitors.com.